If you could please stand for the reading of God's word. The reading and the content of our sermon today will be Joshua chapter 4. Um, we'll be reading the entire chapter, starting in verse 1. Now, when all the nation had finished crossing the Jordan, the Lord spoke to Joshua, saying, Take your, for yourselves twelve men from the people, one man from each tribe, and command them, saying, Take up for yourselves twelve stones from here out of the middle of the Jordan, from the place where the priest's feet are standing firm, and carry them over with you, and lay them down in the lodging place where you will lodge tonight. So Joshua called the twelve men whom he had appointed to the sons of Israel, one man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, Cross again to the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan, and each of you take up a stone on his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Israel. Let this be a sign among you, so that when your children ask later, saying, What do these stones mean to you? Then you shall say to them, because the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord, when it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall become a memorial to the sons of Israel forever. Thus the sons of Israel did as Joshua commanded, and took up twelve stones from the middle of the Jordan, just as the Lord spoke to Joshua, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Israel. And they carried them over with them to the lodging place and put them down there. Then Joshua set up twelve stones in the middle of the Jordan at the place where the feet of the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant were standing, and they are there to this day. For the priests who carried the Ark were standing in the middle of the Jordan until everything was completed that the Lord had commanded Joshua to speak to the people, according to all that Moses had commanded Joshua, and the people hurried and crossed. And when all the people had finished crossing, the Ark of the Lord and the priests crossed before the people. The sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh crossed over in battle array before the sons of Israel, just as Moses had spoken to them. About 40,000 equipped for war, crossed for battle before the Lord to the desert plains of Jericho. On that day, the Lord exalted Joshua in the sight of all Israel, so that they revered him, just as they had revered Moses all the days of his life. Now the Lord said to Joshua, Command the priests who carry the ark of the testimony that they come up from the Jordan. So Joshua commanded the priests, saying, Come up from the Jordan. It came about when the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord had come up from the middle of the Jordan, and the soles of the priests' feet were lifted up to the dry ground, that the waters of the Jordan returned to their place and, all, and went over all its banks as before. Now the people came up from the Jordan on the tenth of the first month and camped at Gilgal on the eastern edge of Jericho. Those 12 stones which they had taken from the Jordan, Joshua set up out at Gilgal. He said to the sons of Israel, when your children ask their fathers in time to come, saying, what are these stones? Then you shall inform your children, saying, Israel crossed this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until you had crossed it, just as the Lord your God had done to the Red Sea, which he dried up before us until we had crossed that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, so that you may fear the Lord your God forever. Here ends the reading of God's word. Please be seated. Let's pray before we hear from God's word this morning. Heavenly Father, we ask now again that you would grant us the grace to hear and to understand and me the ability to proclaim this, your glorious gospel truth. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. 
do this in remembrance of me. It's the title of this morning's message. And having studied, as we have over the years, the book of Genesis, the book of Exodus, and here now Joshua, um, the early stages of redemptive history, we're given dim, faint foreshadowings of our Lord Jesus Christ. That is, as we read the Old Testament, we see uh, what is otherwise known as types of Christ. Types of Christ. You see it in Joseph, who was rejected by his own kinsmen, but then went on to deliver them. We see it in Moses, that is, a type of Christ, who speaks the word of God and leads the people of God. We see it now here in Joshua, who is a type of the greater Joshua, our Lord Jesus Christ. The name Joshua, again, means the Lord is salvation. Jesus, that name, is the Greek version of Joshua, who is our Lord who saves. Jesus. So here now as we continue in the book of Joshua, we have witnessed Israel crossing the Jordan River into the promised land. We've studied the preparations that were made beforehand. And this morning we read um, actions taken during and after this miraculous crossing. Now, this dramatic event into Canaan was the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham hundreds of years earlier, and then reaffirmed in Isaac, and then Jacob, and then finally to Moses and the people that he was leading out of Egypt after 400 years of bondage there. And then, of course, there were 40 years of wandering in the wilderness due to their disobedience. That generation died off in the wilderness, and only two who crossed through the Red Sea crossed the Jordan, Caleb and Jacob, um, Joshua, Joshua and Caleb. So here now to commemorate this miraculous crossing of the Jordan was the formation of a memorial, the formation of a memorial. And the most important thing to notice about this account is that it was not something that the people initiated. This was commanded of them by Yahweh himself. Yahweh, the covenant name of the Lord God Almighty, through the mediation of, of Joshua. So in other words, this is a mandated memorial, and as they were situated there on the boundary of the promised land, uh, some two to four million strong, waiting for the word of God to move forward, um, the, the, the Jordan was at flood stage. If you look back at chapter 3 and verse 15, we read that the Jordan overflows all its banks all the days of harvest which means the river may have been as wide as a mile, covering tangled brush and wilderness growth. 
It was at flood stage. So here, God ordered Joshua and the Levitical priests to advance this natural barrier, carrying the Ark of the Covenant, which represented the very presence of Yahweh himself, the Ark of the Covenant. Now, it was also only once that they stepped into the water that the Lord parted it. If you remember crossing the Red Sea, Moses laid his staff into the water, and then God divided it. Here they had to step in, a literal step of faith. And in chapter 3 and verse 16, we read, uh, the waters flowing down from above stood and rose up in one heap a great distance away at Adam. Adam was 20 miles upstream. The riverbed, we read, was dry, was not muddy. It was dry, and the people crossed over, just as God had promised. Now, once they crossed, there stood the priests in the middle, holding the Ark of the Covenant. And then we read here in verse 2, chapter 4, the Lord spoke to Joshua. Take for yourselves 12 men from the people, one man from each tribe. Verse 3, take up for yourselves 12 stones from here out of the middle of the Jordan from the place where the priest's feet are standing firm and carry them over with you and lay them down. Lay them down in the lodging place where you will lodge tonight. Verse 5, each of you take up a stone on his shoulder. These are large stones on his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Israel. Now, lay them down, that, that phrase, literally is, is cause them to rest. Cause these stones to rest. Remember that rest is a very important idea in the book of Joshua. We read back in chapter 1 and verse 13 that the Lord was to give rest to Israel, giving them the promised land. Now, when we get to the New Testament, to the book of Hebrews, chapters 3 and 4, um, that repeats th this concept of rest. And we learn there that that reference of Israel entering into the promised land is it prefigures the believer's entrance into their heavenly rest. That's what this foreshadows. And living in a world of unrest, friends, true rest, true rest can only be found in the gospel of Jesus Christ. There is no other true rest. It's in Christ, in Christ alone. So here, um, there was to be built a, a memorial marker that is a stone representing each of the 12 tribes of Israel, including the three tribes that would remain on the eastern side of the Jordan. You'll remember, I hope, that the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, back in uh, Numbers chapter 32, uh, you know, they realized that, you know, this, this is really good pasture land for our livestock, so why don't we go to Moses and ask him that, hey, can we just skip the promised land and remain on this side? 
Moses said, that's fine. Just be certain when the day comes that you cross and you fight with your brothers until they receive and inherit all the land, then you go back and dwell with your people. And we see in verses 12 and 13, they hold true to their promise. The sons of Reuben and the sons of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh crossed over in battle array. So there they were, faithful. So all 12 tribes of Israel are, are represented. And here, notice, right in the middle of God's blessing, they must stop, okay, stop with determination and, and glorify God in the building of this monument mandated by God. There's a wall of water piling up, and they're called to stop. They're standing in the middle of the riverbed, reminding us that you're never too busy. You're never too busy to worship God. Christian. Unbelievers don't worship God. Only true believers worship the one true God. So there is no, I'm too busy to worship. There is no, um, I'm too busy to, to praise God. There is no, I'm too busy to obey God's prescribed manner of worship in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. They stop. And with determination, do what God has called them to do. Now, this memorial was just one in a series of monuments commemorating God's mighty acts throughout the Old Testament that, that, that confirms some decisive moment in history for all future generations to look back to. This is one of, of, of many. And that includes us, the New Covenant community of the Lord Jesus Christ, to look back at instances like this and rejoice with the brethren Old Covenant believers that you'll be spending eternity with because these are the acts of God on display for his people. And for Old Covenant Israel, you know, God called them to set up the, these kinds of monuments so that when battle was looming on the horizon and they're all of a sudden gripped by fear, or in our case, when we're gripped by spiritual warfare, we, we, we can look at this and we can remember that God who brought them this far will carry them to the end as he will for you. So we rejoice this morning in this monument. Now, there's a bit of a dilemma that we face with verse 9, so I want to explain it. Then Joshua set up 12 stones in the middle of the Jordan at the place where the feet of the priests who carried the Ark of the Covenant were standing, and they are there to this day. Now, either Joshua built two monuments, two memorials, one in the riverbed, and then the one in Gilgal. And if that's the case then the one built in the middle of the riverbed would be visible during the times of year when the water was low. 
So if that's the case, they were set up there uh, where, where the priests stood. And if that is the case, we're reminded of something. Um, I did some research and I found out, I didn't know this until this week, there, there is a stone at the bottom of the Elbe River in Central Europe that reads, if you see me, weep. If you see me, weep. The point there is that the water is so low that the country is now in drought, so weep. Here, it's just the opposite. When Israel saw that heap of rocks, that monument in the middle when the water was low enough, they remembered what happened there. So there's either two monuments or we read that the priest stood in the middle they picked up stones, and then subsequently, they moved them to the shore and set it up there in Gilgal, and that makes much more sense to me when I read verse 3. So, whether you think there's two monuments or one, study it out yourself. So, perhaps the, the 12 stones were put there first in the middle, piled up there uh, where the priest stood with the Ark of the Covenant, and they're taken then to the western bank of the river. So whatever the case, we, we see this kind of thing um, over and over again. Now, monuments that commemorate God's almighty works throughout history to manifest something of his sovereign power, they all find their climax in the institution of the memorial of all memorials, and that is the redeeming work of Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross. That is the memorial of all memorials is represented right here on that table, the broken body and the shed blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, something that we partake of until he comes again. We'll be reminded of that later this morning. So this Communion Sunday, as we work our way through the text, I want to point out some parallels between this monumental ceremony and this monument of stones that were taken out of the Jordan River. And the first parallel is this. Memorials are needed based on human forgetfulness. Memorials are needed based on human forgetfulness. We read in verse, verse 6, let this be a sign among you so that when your children ask later saying, well, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall say to them, because the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall become a memorial to the sons of Israel forever. Israel must not forget the sovereign act of God at the Jordan. And friends, how, how we must not forget God's work on Calvary, what the Lord Jesus did on the cross. Is it possible to forget? Yeah, it is. I don't know if you read Spurgeon's Morning and Evening, but just this past week, it was on the 26th, 
morning devotional, citing 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 24, do this in remembrance of me, Spurgeon writes the following, quote, it appears almost impossible that those who have been redeemed by the blood of the dying lamb and loved with an everlasting love by the eternal son of God should forget that gracious savior. Forget him who never forgot us. Forget him who poured out his blood for our sins. Forget him who loved us even to death. Some creature comes and steals away your heart. And you are unmindful of him upon whom your affection ought to be set. Some earthly business engrosses your attention when you should fix your eyes steadily upon the cross. It is the incessant turmoil of the world. The constant attraction of earthly things which takes away the soul from Christ. While memory too well preserves, now check this out. While memory too well preserves a poisonous weed, it causes the rose of Sharon to wither. End of quote. Rose of Sharon is cited from the Song of Solomon's, I think it's chapter 2, Song of Solomon chapter 2. Spurgeon uses that as, as a reference to Christ. So the, the history lesson we read needs to be, to be taught again and again to the next generation, to these children in here. The, the gospel needs to be taught over and over again. Friends, unless we teach the next generation about the Lord, they will turn away and start following the world. That's why you make your children go to church, to hear the gospel. Now, if they choose to reject the gospel, follow after the world, at least we know we did all that we're called to do. So that perhaps once we're gone, once we're in the ground, perhaps the Lord will resurrect those truths that we sowed into them. So do the sowing. Whether they gripe about it or not, do the sowing. Amen? Now, under the new covenant, instead of commanding us to erect a pile of stones to commemorate what Almighty God has done, God now commands us to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and to receive the ordinances of his church. Two ordinances, what are they? Baptism and the Lord's Supper, okay? Our focus is not on baptism this morning, but it's on the Lord's Supper. The bread in the, in, in the cup symbolize Christ's broken body and shed blood. And friends, that communion is not to be mystified. Men mystify that experience. You know, it's not some ritual that is to be spoken in Latin, nor is it the heretical teaching of something known as transubstantiation, where it literally turns into the body and blood of Christ. That's heresy. Catholics teach that today. These signs are to be explained, so we tell it, we explain it, we expound it. That is the work Christ has done on our behalf. His broken body and shed blood, which I'll get to in more depth in a few minutes. He said, do this in remembrance of me. Friends, that, that, that's a command. Do this in remembrance of me. Now, some of you watching at home, I say this in love. 
You have not participated in the Lord's Supper with the body of Christ for over a year. Whether it's some kind of COVID fear or some other issue, honestly, you need to reconsider your priorities. Communion is needed as we gather together to keep our eyes on Christ, looking to Christ because we live in the midst of a world full of distractions. And far too many Christians have been fearfully manipulated over the past year or so. And they put themselves on a shelf. And now they're just comfortable watching church at home. We're called to be together. And we're called to take the Lord's Supper when we what? When we come together. When we come together. There are so many things invading the church today. There are so, so many social narratives invading the minds of God's people today, and they put the gospel on the shelf. Preachers don't preach the gospel. Many preachers are, are preaching social narratives, neglecting the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not remembering. I want you to see a parallel of simplicity. It's the parallel of simplicity. Now, this is the act of God which is miraculous. It happened just as he said it would, and it is to be simply commemorated. We see in verse 8, verse 10, verses 14 through 18. Look, this is what you do. Set up the monument, and when your children ask, you tell them this. The Lord rescued. The Lord delivered his people. And once they crossed... The waters fell back down to flood stage. The Lord's Supper maintains the simplicity that Christ suffered and died in our place. He suffered and died. God's spotless lamb on the cross, his perfect life and atoning death alone saves, cleanses, gives us new life. That is to be simply declared. So that, that's the need for this memorial today. The broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ, lest we forget Calvary. Lest we forget Calvary. Now consider the nature of the memorial. Okay, now uh, these stones were piled up, but they weren't just any stones. They didn't pick them up off the beach. These were not stones hewn out of a side of a mountain somewhere. They're not man-made, hand-cut, but they were taken out of the riverbed that the people just crossed from out of. So there was a connection between the stones and the great act of deliverance that God provided for them. From out of this river, take these stones and pile them up. Here at the communion table, there's a connection between the bread taken and he who came down from out of heaven who is the bread of life. Jesus said of himself, I am the bread of life. John 6, he said this, for the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life to the world. I am the bread 
of life. His perfect, sinless body, the humanity of Jesus, was crowned with thorns, was nailed to a cross as he hung there naked to suffer in my place. Don't forget that. Don't forget Calvary. So there's a connection between the bread representing his holy body and the cup that is red. The cup that is red. The symbol, therefore, has a direct link, an obvious correlation to the death of our Lord Jesus Christ on Calvary's cross. The stones, they come out of the river. Bread has come down from heaven. His body, his blood shed, spilled. Because life is in the what? Life is in the blood. So the red cup causes us to ponder the cost of our redemption. To remember that you were not redeemed. 1 Peter 1, look at it, verse 18. You were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Which leads us to consider what's behind all of this. What's behind such a sacrifice? What's behind the broken body and shed blood of our Jesus Christ? Answer, infinite love. Steadfast love. What led Israel out of Egypt and through the wilderness? The steadfast love of the Lord. The infinite love of God. In Exodus 15, we read these words in verse 13. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. And then he led them in that same steadfast love, by that same steadfast love, into the promised land. We consider not merely what happened at the cross, but why he did what he did there. And we're told in Romans chapter 5, verse 8, God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God demonstrates his love by way of the cross, crushing his son. That's what we remember. Jesus came from heaven to take my place upon that cross because of infinite love, because of his steadfast love. So that's what we explain. That's what we expound. That's the message that does not change. That's the message that must not be ignored. The bread representing his perfect, bruised, crucified body and his life drained out in blood. Could Jesus just have pricked his finger? Was that enough blood to save us? No. No. It had to be poured out because life is in the blood. In other words, he had to die. You don't die from a, a finger prick. His blood is holy. It is that holy, but his blood had to be poured out. His life drained out. 
Okay, this is very important now. Out of God's love comes the doctrine of penal substitution. Penal has to do with punishment. Out of divine love comes penal substitution. If you do not understand penal substitution, you don't know why Christ died. If you don't understand penal substitution, you won't understand God's love. It's not possible. Which tells us that all sin must be punished. All sin must be punished. Either the sinner will bear the punishment of God eternally in hell, or Christ took that punishment on the cross in your place. Because the only thing that protects the pure holiness and righteousness of God is that sin must be what? Punished. It must be punished. And out of his love, he provides a penal substitute. That's what the table represents. Penal substitution. Punishment poured out upon the Son of God. And let me say this, if you come from other churches or you're visiting here and you attend another church, penal substitution is not an optional issue. Penal substitution is not optional for preachers, whether they decide to preach it or not. Many so-called churches in our day refuse to preach it. Therefore, guess what? They're not true churches. Why do they refuse to preach it? Because in order to preach penal substitution, you must, you must preach on the wrath of God. And because many preachers fear men and women, they refuse to preach on God's wrath. So if you refuse to preach on God's wrath, you can't preach about propitiation. Because propitiation means literally God's wrath is satisfied. First John 2, verse 2. Jesus Christ, the righteous, he himself is the what? Propitiation for our sins. Romans 3, 25. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Our call to worship this morning. First John 4, verse 10. This in this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Is there anything God can't do? Yeah. Yes, there are things God cannot do. He cannot act contrary to his nature. One of the things that God cannot do is simply wave off sin. God cannot simply sweep sin under the rug. God is holy, righteous, and pure, and he must punish sin. And how do you punish sin? By punishing sinners. Because sin resides within sinners. Only sinners sin. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So out of God's infinite love, he sends a penal substitute, his holy, righteous, pure son, to provide propitiation, satisfaction of his holy wrath and justice. That's what that memorial means. Penal substitution tells us that God is so holy that every sin will be, must be, punished. 
God is so pure. He, he is so righteous, so holy. He will punish every sin, either in the sinner or in his son. Which do you prefer? Don't forget, Calvary. Do this in remembrance of me. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son who soaked up the wrath of God for the sins of his flock. Soaked it up. You'll never taste it, therefore. That means you'll never be judged for one sin. Not for one sin, Christian. Only those who are in Christ. Now, another parallel is that the memorial points to a particular place. A particular place. In verse 9, Joshua 4, Joshua set up 12 stones in the middle of the Jordan at the place where the feet of the priest who carried the Ark of the Covenant were standing, and then into Gilgal, where they were delivered into the promised land. So on the very spot that they passed through, on the land where they safely landed, they were to take these stones and build this monument. By the way, this is the very, very close to the place, very near to the place where Jesus, when he commenced his public ministry, went down to the Jordan to be what? Baptized. John the Baptist saw the Lord Jesus on that day and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There at the Jordan. So we participate in the memorial of the Lord's Supper that points us and takes us to Calvary, the place, Golgotha, the place of the skull, the hill upon which our Savior was crucified, that place, that place. And those whose faith and trust is on the one and in the one who was crucified at that place, God's justice and wrath, what? Passes over passes over you. Old Covenant Israel, fleeing from Egypt, were to paint blood of a spotless lamb on the door frames of their home so that God's justice would pass over them. Only in Christ, who is the propitiation for God's wrath, will you be passed over in judgment. So as we partake of these elements... They were given to us by God himself. They lead us to the cross, or they ought to, each and every time we participate in the Lord's Supper. Not unlike Israel. Remember, remember, remember. The world can't deny this fact. The world cannot deny the fact that a man, a Galilean, a Nazarene by the name of Jesus, lived. They can't deny the fact that he was crucified. The Jews who hated him recorded it. The Romans recorded it. People witnessed it. So as long as, the God, as long as this world stands, the gospel stands. Therefore, it is to be preached to the end of the world. This place, Golgotha. Now, acknowledging that truth is not enough. 
Mental assent to that truth is not enough. Fearing God in the sense of judgment is not enough. One must place their faith and trust in God and what he has provided through his son, Jesus Christ. Look, for instance, at chapter 5 and verse 1, which is actually part of the account we just read in chapter 4. It's a really bad chapter break. Chapter breaks came long after the Bible was written, by the way, and um, some of the chapter breaks are just in bad places, and this is one of them. Verse 1. Now it came about when all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard how the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan before the sons of Israel until they had crossed, their hearts melted. And there was no spirit in them any longer because of the sons of Israel, because of the representatives of Yahweh who he delivered. You can agree with the facts all day long and go to hell when you die. The question is, is is your faith and trust in the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ, his finished work? You've entrusted yourself to him fully. There's not a righteous bone in you that will get you to heaven. You need God's substitute. There's only one. Otherwise, you're just merely self-righteous. If I've said it once, I've said it a thousand times. The epitome of self-righteousness is to think, to dare think that you're good enough to get to heaven on your own because you're a good person. All that reveals is that you're on the broad road that leads, Jesus said, to what? Destruction. Penal substitution is the only way through Christ. So it points to a place. Now, another parallel of the stones is a marker to remember. That is the drying up of this Jordan and Calvary itself provides a teaching lesson. Parallel of a teaching lesson. Notice the memorial of stones becomes a pulpit for the people of Israel in the Old Covenant. From this monument, family after family, Man after man, father after father, they're the spiritual leaders. That's their job. It's our job, men, to teach our families about the gospel, about the Lord Jesus Christ, about the Bible. And they're to give the message of the crossing. Notice verse 20. Those 12 stones which they had taken from the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. He said to the sons of Israel, when your children ask their fathers in times to come, saying, what are these stones? Then you shall inform your children, saying, Israel crossed the Jordan on dry ground. He even provides the the the, the sermon manuscript right there. God provides it. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan before you until you had crossed, just as the Lord your God had done to the Red Sea, which he dried up before us until we had crossed. Now, partaking of the memorial of all memorials, the Lord's table, we are reminded again of the broken body and shed blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're reminded of his propitiation and we're reminded of his infinite love. So the value of the symbols lead us to Christ and the cross. The value of the symbols of those stones led the Israelites to God's promise of deliverance through which they passed. Amen? 
So the, the, the assumption with an emphasis on children here, notice in verses 21 to 23, this monument of stones will incite curiosity within the children. Dad, why these stones? Why every time we pass this way, we see these stones? All dads must be able to deal with this. All dads are called to answer the questions of their children with regard to things pertaining to the Lord and his gospel. Yes, we're nurtured at the knee of our mother. Dad, it's your job to teach. Therefore, it's your job to learn. Don't throw this on mama. This is our job. So that is to say, signs must be accompanied by explanation. God gives the signs and he provides the corresponding explanation right there. There's your sermon manuscript. Fathers of old covenant Israel, pass it on. Now, this morning, for you children, although you're not participating in the Lord's table with us, you're learning and you're hearing the gospel. Every time we partake of the table, you're seeing the gospel made visible, the broken body and the shed blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. You hear the gospel every week, and you see it 12 times a year. So when the time comes, when you make a personal profession of faith in Jesus Christ, you will then be baptized, and once you're baptized, you will also be able to participate in the communion of the Saints, which reminds us that attending church is not for the sake of entertainment, right? We don't come to church to be entertained, but to be educated, to, to be informed of the greatest event in human history, the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. And everything we're reading in the Old Testament points forward to that magnificent, magnanimous event, the climax of history, the greater Joshua, the one who came to take away the sins of many and to justify us in his resurrection. You see, kids, we're forgiven by way of his crucifixion. We're justified. That means to be declared right before God. You're not condemned. We're justified by way of his resurrection. If Jesus did not rise, we'd be condemned and still in our sins, but he did. And through faith and trust in him, you are declared free from all blame. That's what is represented in the broken body and shed blood of Christ. Those symbols must be explained. Because the new covenant memorial points to God's faithfulness. This pile of stones pointed to God's faithfulness to uh, lead Israel out of bondage and into the promised land. It's his faithfulness, not the Israelites. The table is because of God's faithfulness, not yours, not mine. Amen? He gets the glory. So just as Israel went through the Jordan on dry ground, it's not my, I read some commentators, you know, you know, the priests were standing there and they were probably sinking in the mud holding the Ark of the Covenant and they're having to pull these rocks out of the mud. Hey, man, read the text. It says dry ground. I read it in like three commentaries this week. It says dry. You know what dry means? Dry. dry. 
It means not muddy. God did this so that all the peoples of the earth may know that Jesus is the Christ. Christ means royal anointed one. The royal anointed one. Sent from the ancient of days who returned to the ancient of days to receive the kingdoms of the earth. He now rules and reigns. The only thing on the order to come is his second glorious coming to judge the world. It will come without warning, like a thief in the night, said Jesus. Now in verse 24, Yahweh d- displayed his mighty power so that all the peoples of the earth might see it and know that he is the Lord. All these surrounding pagan nations, I just read it in chapter 5 and verse 1, they, they, they were filled with trepidation by what God just accomplished for his people. And notice, it's so that you may fear the Lord your God. The fear of the Lord, the Bible tells us, is the beginning of what? Wisdom. Fear of the Lord, that's just Old Testament stuff. No, it's not. Amen? As a matter of fact, um, it'll be acknowledged that you who fear the Lord now will fear him for the rest of eternity. How do we know that? Well, we read from Revelation 19 earlier. Look at it. Verse 5. And a voice from heaven, a voice came from the throne, rather. A voice came from the throne saying, Give praise to our God, all you his bondservants. You who what? Fear him. Reverential awe. You who fear him. The small and the great. Those of you who on, on earth were, were presidents and princes, and those of you on earth who believed her were paupers, small and great. Then I heard something like the voice of a great multitude and the sound of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder saying, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready, clothed in white robes, covered by the blood of Christ, purified in glory. Reverence and awe right there in the presence of the glorified Christ for all those who believe. The Lamb is the Lord Jesus Christ, the greater Joshua, who during his earthly ministry John the Apostle records in his gospel these words. As we move towards the table and I wrap up. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing and only by believing you may have life In his name, there's only one name. It's the name above all names that saves. Jesus the Christ, who is the propitiation of God. So on on judgment day, friends, the question for all will be, did you believe on my son? Did you trust in my son 
alone? Did you put your faith and your hope in him? So let there be no questions about it, beloved. Let there be no questions about what Christ has accomplished, but come to trust in the blood and righteousness of Christ if you remain outside saving faith at this moment. Repent and believe, and you too shall be able to cross over to the promised land. His sacrifice, which is the only sacrifice, is the only thing that makes reconciliation with God possible. Reconciliation, what's that? To bring sinners to peace with God. Christ is the true peacemaker. He provides atonement. Atonement, what's that? at one mint. at one mint to make you at one with God through faith in Jesus Christ, whose body was broken, whose blood was shed, and who alone provides propitiation to God's wrath. Satisfied, once and for all, delivered. Verse 24, that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty so that you may fear the Lord your God forever. May God grant it to be so. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Let's prepare to partake of the table. Lord, we do thank you again for the gospel woven throughout redemptive history, finding its climax in the broken body and the shed blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, who conquered sin, who conquered death, was raised on the third day, has ascended to your right hand, who now rules and reigns forevermore. Let us remember vividly this morning as we prepare to partake, know, knowing for certain that the promised land is ours through faith in him alone. Together we say, amen.